0: We've been going through this series, Church Scene Investigation, CSI, did you all get that, by the way? You haven't missed our, our excellent pun there. Um, the heart of the, what this has been about is this idea of having a degree of self-awareness as a church, of actually, what are we like? What are our strengths? What are our weaknesses? And raising that question of actually, what would God see in us as a church? And I don't know if you remember, but when, when I kicked this series off, we started off, um, I shared with you about the Mystery Worshipper website, where these mystery worshippers turn up at a church and they, they write a review of it. And I've, I've spent a little bit too much time perusing the website. So before I actually get into what I really want to say to you, I just had to share two little excerpts with you, for no other reason than it, it's entertaining. Because one of the really interesting questions that they, the mystery worshippers have to answer is, did anything distract you? And my two personal favorites that I've come across in that category were um, in one church there was a sign in the church saying, private property no hunting, fishing or trapping. <laughs> and then the, the better one I feel what distracted you? All the ministers using hand sanitizers before serving communion. Good to know they're taking care of hygiene there. But anyway So we're looking in the book of Revelation, this vision that John has. And this part of the vision is this vision of Jesus who is giving him messages for each of the churches in this particular part of Asia, which is going to appear in a moment on the screen. Yay, there it is. So in this particular part here, these churches that we said, nothing particularly special about these churches. It's seven of them that are perhaps representative of the church as a whole. And we're going to be moving today to look at... Don't you love it working with technology? Shall I just go and press the button over here instead? There we go. This one here. These two churches. The churches of Philadelphia and Laodicea. Now These are the last two churches on the route. The churches we've been looking at sort of follow that little loop around that little peninsula there. And so these are the last two. And I can't can't help but wonder to myself, you know, the people in those two churches, have they heard the rumor that this letter's doing the rounds? Because the courier would have been taking the letters for the first church, and then perhaps next week he'd arrive at the next church with the letter. Do they know it's coming, maybe? Are they aware? There's this letter doing the rounds. You're next. Perhaps they've heard on the grapevine some of the things that were said to the other churches. Some of the previous churches we've looked at had some really good feedback. Some of them, not such good feedback. I wonder how they're feeling as they're awaiting their turn. You're next. What's Jesus got to say to you? And so perhaps put ourselves for a moment in that position, you know, imagine that we've heard there's this letter from God going around all the churches in East Anglia, and we've we've heard what they went and said at this church over in Norwich, and we've heard what they said to the church in Cambridge, and we've heard what they said to the church in Ely, and it's us this Sunday. How are you going to be feeling? there's probably some things they're hoping to hear. I wonder if there are things they're thinking, oh, he's going to bring up that, isn't he? You know, those things you all going. that's bound to come up. So I imagine there's an element of perhaps excitement, perhaps nervousness. But the letter is coming. And Jesus' words are true. And so as it says all the way through these at the end of each letter... Let he who have is, let him hear. Hear what God has to say. So we're going to start off with the Church of Philadelphia. Their letter. Now, Philadelphia is not hugely significant. It's a, not a very strong church, as we'll see in the letter. Nothing particularly amazing going on there. They don't rate themselves pretty particularly highly. Okay, So you can imagine how they might be feeling. As this letter comes to them. And so you can imagine the courier or whoever's been the leader probably given to read it standing up in the church and he says to them, to the angel of the church in Philadelphia write, the words of the holy one, the true one who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut, who shuts and no one opens. I know your works. Behold, I have set before you an open door, which no one is able to shut. I know that you have little power, and yet you have kept my word and have not denied my name. Behold, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan, who say that they are Jews and are not, but lie. Behold, I will make them come and bow down before your feet, and they will learn that I have loved you. and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down from my God out of heaven, and my own new name, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Phew, goes the church in Philadelphia. That's a pretty good report. Not bad. So, this is a church that has little power. Interestingly, um Helen mentioned last week the church in Sardis had had an earthquake. It seems actually this is, turns out an earthquake prone region, because a lot of these churches, when you look back in their history, have had earthquakes. And this particular church, I put up an earthquake map for you, hopefully. We'll press the button again. There we go. There's the picture of the earthquake map. So you can see just up above Africa there, yeah, the So they do get a lot of earthquakes. Now, when this church had an earthquake, in, it was in AD 17, um, because it was quite a poor area, they actually received some assistance from Caesar, from Rome, in the form of tax relief, so that they could actually rebuild their city. And I think that, that kind of gives us a, as a picture of this area. They were an area that needed help. They didn't have the capacity, when there was an earthquake and everything fell down, to rebuild for themselves. They needed help. And there was a sense in which they lost their power, their ownership, then, because after that happening, they were briefly renamed Neo-Caesarea, Caesar's new city, in in honor of the support that they'd received. Okay, So that gives you a sense of the, the feeling of the place. Now, we don't know a lot specifically about the situation of the actual church there in Philadelphia. We don't know why they have little power. Are they a particularly small group of Christians there, maybe? Is it that the people in the church there are lacking in strength somehow? Are are they not particularly skilled? Do they not have much influence in their society? We don't know. Interestingly, the other places where that word, where it says, um, you have but little power, that word power, elsewhere you find it used in the New Testament, it's talking about spiritual power, the power of God. And so I can't help but wonder if maybe it's a sense that they feel as a church they're not seeing much of the power of God going on. They're feeling a bit weak. Where are you, God? What's going on here? And so try to think, therefore, if as a church you felt we're weak, we're not seeing much happening here. We're not seeing God moving here. We're not seeing that blessing. You can imagine how the temptation would be perhaps to drift away and think, well, if we're not seeing answers to our prayers, if we're not seeing ourselves influencing our community, perhaps God isn't in this. Perhaps we've got the wrong idea. And certainly, the people around them seem to be saying about that about them. They're saying, look, well, clearly, you've got the wrong end of the sticker. You're in the wrong. God is not blessing you. You're not growing. You are not strong. I wonder, perhaps, if we put it into our modern context, where we're blessed with such a variety of churches around us, perhaps, actually, if we're thinking, God's not moving in this place, this church isn't very powerful, maybe I'll go somewhere else where I do see the power of God working. But in spite of this, these Christians in Philadelphia haven't wavered in their faith. They haven't drifted off. They haven't given up and said, God doesn't seem to be moving and this must be wrong. They haven't wandered away. They have stayed faithful and continued to look to him and to honor him. And so God has a beautiful response for them in that. There's three things that he responds to them. First of all, he talks about this open door that no one can shut, that no one is going to steal away from them. Now, open doors, often we're used, when we hear, um, when Paul's writing in the New Testament about open doors, he's talking about open doors for the message of the gospel, being able to go and tell people about Jesus. This isn't Paul writing, this is John's vision. And here this open door is talking about the doorway into heaven. The idea that for these Christians, the doorway into heaven is open. And that's significant for them because their circumstances perhaps made them wonder if that door to heaven was closed because they felt weak, they felt powerless. They felt maybe the door was closed. But God says, no, that door into heaven is open. And the important thing, the message that God's giving them is about who opens that door, who holds the key to that door because it's not their power that has opened the door. it's God who opens the door. It's Jesus who has opened the door. And because it's Jesus who opened it, not them, nobody can shut that door. Not yourself and not other people who are coming saying, don't mm, think you're really in the right place here. Only Jesus holds the key to that door. And so the first sort of encouragement I think we can take from this. Say, if you yourself perhaps feel that you are lacking in power, perhaps you feel you're not as super spiritual as some of the others you see around you. It is not how super spiritual you are that determines whether that door to heaven is open to you. The only person who unlocks that door is Jesus through what he did in his sacrifice on the cross. doesn't matter how strong or weak you are. doesn't matter what skills you have or don't have. Jesus holds the key to that door. He has opened it to you. And no one, not you, nor anybody else, can shut that door. And then he says to them, in verse 10, Because you have kept my word about patient endurance, I will keep you from the hour of trial that is coming on the whole world to try those who dwell on the earth. Now we could at this point go off on a really juicy, complicated theological study of this hour of trial. Revelation gets all confusing, talk about at some point in the future there's going to be this time when things get really bad and are the Christians still going to be there at that point or are they already all going to be in heaven at that point? And it gets really complicated, but that's not what I want to focus on this morning because I think actually there's a more useful message to us. You see, God says he's going to keep them from this hour of trial, whatever this hour of trial is that's coming, whether it's already happened, whether it's still to come. What's interesting is that there was another church that had a letter in this that also didn't really have any criticism, a church that was doing really well. It was the church in Smyrna. The God said, actually, well done. I see your works. You're doing a good job. And yet to this church in Smyrna, he doesn't say, I'll keep you from this hour of trial. You're off the hook. You can relax. To them, he says, do not fear what you are about to suffer. And that's really interesting, I think. Two churches, both of whom doing a good job, both of whom are remaining faithful in spite of others putting them down, in spite of others attacking them, to one, he says, I'm going to protect you, I'm going to not make you go through this trial, to the other, he says, don't fear, you're going to go through a really rough time, but don't worry, it's going to be okay. That doesn't seem fair, does it? Why is it not the same? The only thing I can think, and what that says to me, is that God knows his people so very, very intimately that he knows exactly what each church needs. Because yes, when you look on the surface, if you do a box sticking exercise, they both look the same, both doing a good job, both remaining true to his name. But they're made up of different people with different needs. And so God's response to one person in a situation might be different to his response to another person in the same situation because he knows what they need. He knows their strengths. He knows his purpose in their lives. And so perhaps we can take some encouragement there that actually whether God's message to us is I'm not going to let you go through a particular suffering or actually you are going to go through suffering but don't fear it, we can take confidence that God knows us as individuals. He knows what's right for us. He knows how to lead us through things. And he knows when we need protecting from things. And we can trust him that whichever route he decides for us, even if we don't think he's chosen the best one, because frankly, I'd like to not go through the trials. If he's saying, actually, no, you are going to go through a trial, we can trust he knows you. He knows what's right for you, and he will carry you through it. And if he does for you, say, actually, this one is too much for you. I'm going to protect you from this. Brilliant. Thank you, God, for that. Then there's two more things that he promises them. First of all, he says to them, I will make you a pillar in the temple of God. Never shall he go out of it. A pillar in God's temple. Remember, this is a town who part of their history was this earthquake where the town was all but destroyed and they had to get help to rebuild. The pillar of God's temple, a permanent bit that's holding it up, that's solid and strong. And you don't take the pillar out of the temple. Pillars are permanent features. They're not things that are moved around. And he's reassuring them, yeah, life on earth has been there, but you are going to be a pillar in the temple of God. You are going to stand there in God's presence, permanently, strong. That is your future. You may not feel strong now. It may all feel a mess right now, but that is where you are headed for. And then finally, he says to them, I will write on him three names. The name of my God, the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, and my own new name. I'm sure you're all aware, if you're not already, you will be soon that we have a new puppy at home. Before we were allowed to take our puppy home, we had to get the little dog tag to go on his collar. It's really cool. You go to Pets at Home, and there's this little machine And you buy the counters from the cash desk, and then you go and put the counters in this machine, and you have to type in what you want engraved on this metal collar. And so we've put on Alfie's, his name. They have to have a surname of the family, which I always find weird. but This is what the vet does. So he's not just Alfie, he's Alfie Reed, because he's part of our family, which is that sense of belonging for him. And so when God's saying, I will write on him, the name of my God. Are you making rude comments about the importance and significance of my dog? He knows. He knows he's part of the family. Yeah, how do you know? You haven't even seen him yet, so you can't comment. Anyway. So just like that name that we give him, Alfie Reed says, he belongs in this family. He belongs to us. Writing the name of God on these people. They belong to God. That sense, they're in this family. They belong. And more than that, he's going to write on them the name of the city of my God. Alfie's dog tag has our address on it so that people know where he belongs. If he ever gets lost, hopefully, they will bring him back to the right place because he's got the address on there. Yeah? God will write on these people the name of that new city, Jerusalem. Say, this is where they belong. This is where they come back to. This is their home. And then finally, he says, my own name. Jesus will write on them his own new name. We don't know what that name is. There's a sense of claiming. Names in this culture weren't just, you know, to distinguish who you were. (laughs) Names spoke of who you are, your character, your personality. And so Jesus is going to reveal something to them of that intimacy of them really knowing something new, of who he is. What an awesome promise that is to the church in Philadelphia. So, if as you were thinking of this letter approaching to tell you how you're doing, you were thinking... I'm not doing so well, I, you know, I'm I'm not doing amazing spiritual stuff. I don't, you know, I haven't saved five people this week during my prayer time. Um, you know, I haven't, you know, miraculously raised anyone from the dead this week, feeling a bit weak. Take encouragement in those things. You are a pillar in the temple of God. You belong to him. You're part of that family. Your place is secure. But then we move on to Laodicea. You might want, for those of you who are trained on place, to assume the brace position at this point. So, most of the letters that we've read, several of us have referred, we've been talking about it, have taken this typical feedback sandwich approach, where if, if you're bringing a, a constructive criticism to somebody, you tell them something positive. Like you say, you're doing this really well. Then you tell them, might want to work on this in a nice, gentle way. And then you round it off with another positive comment. Okay, that's that's the done way to give constructive criticism. Jesus doesn't do that with Laodicea. He's a, a little more blunt and to the point. Now, before we hear their letter, let's just kind of try and put ourselves into that church in Laodicea. So, it's a thriving commercial center okay? There's wealth. Things are going well there. There's a medical school there, a renowned medical school. You might want to try out there Nandi. You could learn some stuff. Brilliant medicines they have there. It's got a thriving textile industry. It's a really good place. This city was apparently on, um, it had like two valleys either side, so it was kind of at the end of the Hill between the two valleys, I don't know what the word is for that. Is there a technical term for that? Ridge, the end of the ridge, two valleys either side, okay? There were rivers in the valley, but in the town itself there wasn't a natural water source. But they were so amazing, their water didn't, they didn't lug it up from the rivers down there, because those rivers were a bit below them frankly. Their water travelled from about five miles away, there was this wonderful spring of rich mineral water. And so they actually had an aqueduct with stone pipes carrying the water to them from this mineral-rich spring all the way into the town. And so in the town they had this bathhouse. its kind of a spa town, you know? Bathhouse, mineral-rich water, not just boring river water. It was a pretty classy place. And so let's hear what Jesus has to say to them. This, uh, chapter three of Revelation, I forgot to mention that earlier. We're in chapter three of Revelation this morning, folks, in case you haven't guessed. Um, from verse fourteen. And to the angel of the church in Laodicea, write. The words of the amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of God's creation. I know your words. You are neither cold nor hot. Would that you were either cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. Now, just in case you don't get quite the impact of that—that that word "spit," so nicely translated here in my version—actually, that word means vomit. Okay? You are so repulsive. You're—you're you're like the Brussels sprouts of churches. Okay. Oh, oh, oh! i made some enemies there. You are so revolting that I'm not just spitting you out; I am vomiting out because you turn my stomach. Whew. Lovely. Don't you know, don't, don't don't you know? Trim it or anything. Just don't, don't be around the bush. Just tell it like it is, Jesus. You are lukewarm. Now I came across a really interesting um, sort of interpretation of the idea that they're lukewarm. See, I I told you about this aqueduct that brought the water in here. Now, maybe it was a hot spring, maybe it was a cold spring, I don't know. But that water that was lovely and fresh at the spring, by the time it's travelled five miles in all of those stone pipes, it's not going to be nice and fresh anymore yeah, that water will have become a bit lukewarm. And actually, that pipe, because it was mineral-rich water, and they've actually found it, because you can still see the remains of the aqueduct there, because it's mineral-rich water, we live in a hard water area, what happens to your pipes and your shiny taps? They get scaled up. And so these pipes that were bringing this water would regularly get so scaled up from this mineral-rich water that they would become blocked the flow would gradually decrease, and they'd have to replace bits of the pipes to let that water flow through properly again. And I think that's a beautiful picture of how we can perhaps become a bit lukewarm. Because, you see, their problem was they were too far away from the, that water source, that spring. And so, because they were so far away, by the time it got to them, they got a bit lukewarm. There'd been some blockages along the way. It had kind of lost something along the way. And I think maybe as a church, they were residing spiritually a bit too far away from their source, a bit too far away from God. And so their spirituality was a bit lukewarm. It was losing something there was a bit of a blockage going on, because they weren't walking close enough to that source of Jesus. Now, I wonder why they became like that. Well, I think they fell into a trap that so many of us can when we're in a place where life is good, as it was for Laodicea. You see, I mentioned the earthquake that Philadelphia had, and they received tax relief to help them rebuild. Laodicea had an earthquake too. Theirs was in AD 60. And they were offered that same tax relief so that they could rebuild. But They said, no, 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 no. We can rebuild ourselves. We don't need the help because we're rich. And I think that was their mindset. They were so strong. Life was so good for them that they didn't think they needed any help. And maybe that seeped into their faith as well. Maybe I don't need God's help, actually, because I'm doing quite nicely here. Things are looking good. We're, we're looking pretty good as a church. We can handle this. You, you take a break, God. Go have a sit down and a cup of tea. Put your feet up. We'll take care of it. We've got this. Because if we read on in the passage, we've got up to verse 17, Jesus says to them, For you say, I am rich. three things there that he's saying you need to buy from me, that they're currently missing. Gold, a white garment, and sal. Now, this is one of those occasions where you usually you can read the Bible and get so much out of it, regardless of your background knowledge, but knowing about the history of Laodicea is really helpful, because these things are quite specific to Laodicea. Gold refined by the fire. We know that they were a really rich, wealthy place. So rich, in fact, we, we gather in the first century B.C., the Jews there, it was a, a rich place at that point, they'd apparently had 20 pounds of gold confiscated from them. It was gold that they'd gathered that they were going to send to the temple in Jerusalem. So their kind of mindset was, we have so much riches, and we give it to God, and we did. 20 pounds of gold. But actually, God saved them, you've got it the wrong way round. You need the riches from me. It's the other way. I don't actually need you. You need me. They needed gold from him, refined in his fire. They couldn't buy favour with God with their gold. They needed the gold from him. And this white garment, so that you may clothe yourself and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen. Remember, I spoke about Laodicea had a thriving textile industry. The people around there were probably pretty smartly dressed. They looked good. Just imagine, has anyone ever had one of those dreams where you suddenly realize you're naked? Or is that just me? Am I sharing too much information here? And anyone ever had? No, just just me. Yes, yeah. Well, you said oh, You look down. Oh my God! Now translate. So the people of Laodicea were covered in the most wonderful clothing to make themselves look so good. But imagine, rather than physical nakedness and how awful that was, imagine it's not just physical nakedness. But actually you suddenly realise that everybody in the room can see everything that's going on in your mind. All those little thoughts that you have, everybody in the room can see them. Now that's really scary. And God's saying to them, you can dress yourselves up in finery, but that doesn't cover what's in your heart. It may look good on the outside, but God still sees what's on the inside. And what's on the inside slips out. However hard we try to dress it up, it slips out. And so they need this white garment from Jesus. That symbol of purity that we're offered from him through his death on the cross. When we come to him, he doesn't just take away all of our sin, but he gives us his purity. His purity is, is clothes us, is put over us to hide our nakedness. That's what they really need, not these smart clothes that make them feel good. They need that one garment of purity that can only come through Jesus. They they can't make that for themselves in their factory. And then this salve. To anoint your eyes so that you may see. They had a medical school there. There were probably loads of amazing salves and potions that would cure every possible ailment and keep them fit and young and healthy. Maybe you'd, you know, get your salves from the medical school, then go down the spa for a bit of, you know, ritual cleansing in the spa. You would be super fit. But he's saying you need something that opens your eyes to see because you're only looking at the physical. You're not looking on the inside. You don't see the state your soul is in. And these people in Laodicea where life was so good and they were thinking, wow, we've got this. We're brilliant. We're amazing. They were blind to the true state of their souls on the inside. Have, have you ever, again, confession time. I, I like to be open and honest here. Anyone ever known somewhere but one where you thought they really don't see what they're like they, they really need their eyes opening to how the world sees them have, have, have anybody now, the disturbing thing is as I reflect upon that, is that these individuals who I think that about probably aren't aware that they don't see themselves as they really are, yeah therefore that means that there are probably people in this room looking at me who are thinking, Claire really needs to open her eyes and see how the world sees her. (laughs) And I won't know either, yeah? Which also, by default, probably means it's the same for you guys. Yeah? Okay? So maybe there's a sense in which we all need to be willing to be brave and take a little bit of this salve and open our eyes and see. How does God actually see me? What am I really like? What's the real truth of who I am? All of these things, it says in the passage, it says, I counsel you to buy from me. That's the language of Laodicea. They can buy anything they want. But actually, these things can't be bought with their riches. The way these things are bought is not with money, Not with wealth. These things are bought by Jesus dying on the cross. It's the only way they can get them. And the solution that God gives them, he says to them from verse 19, those whom I love, he loves them. This is a harsh message. He's threatening to vomit them out of his mouth because he finds them so repulsive. And yet he says, those whom I love, I love you. I reprove and discipline, so be zealous and repent. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in to him and eat with him and him with me. Philadelphia had a message about a door being open to them into heaven, into God's presence, that no one could shut. This is a different door. This is the door into their heart. And God's saying, I'm standing at the door. Jesus is there at the door knocking. And actually, this door isn't the one that Jesus can open. The door into heaven is open for them, but they've got to open their door into their heart to let him in. Because he won't come in uninvited. And so, just as we draw to a close, and I am mindful of time, we are about at the end of our time, just take a moment this morning and ponder, if that letter were coming to us, if that letter were coming to you, as it says at the end of each passage, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. If you've got ears in this room today, Hear what the Spirit's saying to you. Is it this morning that you're feeling weak and you just need to hear that encouragement that Jesus is saying to you, the door to heaven is unlocked for you. You are going to be a pillar in the temple of God. Your place is permanent. You are named as his. You belong to him. Is the Spirit just nudging you, saying, you need to just let me open your eyes. There's there's some truths you need to see. You've been living a little bit too far away from me. You're getting a bit lukewarm. It's time to open your eyes and to look to me again and come back to that heart of the gospel, of that truth that it's through Jesus, not through your own strength. And so, as we close, we haven't got time to sing, but I'd just like us to take a moment to reflect and then I'll close in prayer. Father God, I want to thank you that you do know each one of us so intimately that you, you know exactly what we need to hear. You know exactly what challenges we face, and you know the right way to bring us through them. And Lord, I want to thank you for that encouragement that as we've chosen to turn to you, as we've chosen to receive that forgiveness through Jesus, we know that that door into heaven is open to us. We know that your name is written on us, that we belong to you. We will stand as pillars in your temple, we will never be kicked out of your presence and nothing anyone says to us can change that. But Father, at the same time as we we receive that encouragement, Lord, we want to open our ears, we want to open our eyes to hear the challenge that you have for us. And that challenge that we know you bring in love, you challenge us because you love us and because you want the best of us. So Lord, open our eyes. Help us to see where we need to change. Help us not to stand in our own strength and our own securities, but to find our riches in you, to receive that purity that only comes through your forgiveness. He who has ears let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Amen. Okay. Hopefully some encouragement and some challenge there for us, guys, and I'm hoping none of us are getting vomited out of God's mouth, because that would not be a pretty (laughs) sight. To be fair, I have changed my position on Brussels sprouts. I used to not like them. Apparently, as you get older, your taste buds change. And you're more likely, and so actually in the last few years I must be getting old because I actually, only if they're served with bacon or pork. But, oh, right, they taste different, do they? That must be what it is then. Have a really blessed week, guys. If you could help out just by stacking the chairs in threes on your way out, that would be really helpful. Hope to see you next Sunday.